Thank you for tuning in. Every firm is delivering client experiences every day, but very few are intentionally managing that process. What experiences do you deliver? Are they consistent? How can you improve and even unlock more value from clients across the happiness spectrum? And what would your business look like if your clients found true delight in paying your invoices and referring you to others? This episode dives into the theory and the practice of client experience, also known as CX. Our guest is Ryan Sadam, Chief Experience Officer and Co-Founder of Client Savvy, and we cover a host of topics that will get you thinking differently about both your everyday client interactions and overall operations. Ryan is a passionate and pragmatic innovator and practitioner and shares many great ideas and insights that we, as both individuals and firms, can begin to use today for better CX and business results. This conversation is also another great example of the benefits of the dialogue format we have here on the podcast. So without any further delay, let's do it. Welcome to AEC Leadership Today, the podcast designed exclusively for engineering, architecture, and construction industry leaders who want to stay relevant and effective. The show takes on the most pressing issues facing the AEC industry and was created to help you and your firm grow and prosper in the 21st century. The host of AEC Leadership Today is Pete Atherton, a professional engineer and former AEC principal and owner turned AEC coach and consultant. And now, take a break from your never-ending to-do list and welcome Peter Atherton. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another great episode of AEC Leadership Today. Today, we'll be speaking with Ryan Sadam, Chief Experience Officer and Co-Founder of Client Savvy, and we'll be talking about client experience. Welcome to the podcast, Ryan. Hey, Pete. Thanks a lot for having me. Well, thank you for joining us. I'm excited for this episode, um, but let's start with getting to know you a little bit. Can you share about you, your career, and what brought you to where you are today as Chief Experience Officer and a CX leader? Sure. I, I, uh, I'm married to a woman who uh, 21 years later still can't believe I'm a guy that teaches relationship management and empathy for a living. So uh, uh, my journey is, is uh, pretty unconventional from that regard and certainly unexpected. I studied architecture at NC State University, began my career in the practice and uh, realized that uh, at best I'd only ever be a mediocre uh, uh, designer of buildings in the built environment, uh, far more creative people out there than me. But I loved that idea of design thinking. And uh, um, really, uh, clients just, 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 just befuddled me. Uh, I, I struggled to understand people and uh, got really interested in that. My co-founding partner, who's a very successful architect himself, has a, a top 1% performing architecture firm. Uh, was just masterful, is masterful at, at all those human relationships. So we teamed up and decided to, to start a business together, uh, applying technology, process, and other things to understand people, understand expectations, and, and really try to create systems that can be deployed organizationally to elevate all members of the firm to be more empathetic, more focused on value creation and uh, you know, just a couple of dumb architects trying something new and creative and find out there's actually a science for this called 
customer experience management. So uh, uh, it, it's not like that's what we started out to do, but we ended up there. And uh, it's, it's been a really fun ride over the last 16 years. So you're, a, you're practicing in the architecture world and you have someone that you're working with who also has a passion for the, the client side, the relationship side, and you just one day looked at each other and said, let's go start this new venture? Or how, how, did that, how did that happen? Yeah, well, when I realized I was never going to be a great architect, I ended up taking over technology for the design firm. And, and this is back, you know, in the early aughts. Uh, uh, I figured, uh, you know, when I was never going to get rich as an architect. So, so, so go join a tech startup somewhere. And, and my uh, boss at the time, now my business partner, said, hey, uh, we could do a startup. Well, what are we going to do a startup on? Clients. Let's, let's figure out the clients. So uh, here we are. <laughs> okay, excellent. So, so part of your early professional, it, it's uh, just segmenting the business and getting into whether it be personal side or, or adding a new service line to the business got into the, the technology side of client experience, which is really neat. Yeah, and the technology angle led us to all of the uh, strategy and design thinking and, and, and non-technical aspects of client experience as well. So, so yes, there are absolutely uh, a tools and platforms that exist in the world to help firms manage the client experience, but uh, there's, there's a lot more. Uh, this is not something you just throw another tool at. It's, it's, a, it's a mindset shift in, in where you orient your business. Well, let's, let's get into that. So how do, how do you define CX? Um, because it is this topic, you know, we, we hear about, people talk about it, they don't quite know what it is. How, how do you define CX? So uh, I'm probably a little bit different because uh, I focus very specifically on professional services, engineers, architects, construction. Uh, we've grown uh, pretty strongly in legal accounting, some tech providers as well but our core really was always an AEC. And uh, uh, we have clients, not customers. So when, when I talk about CX, I don't talk customer experience. I mm -hmm. talk client experience. And there's not a lot of voices out there talking client experience. Uh, uh, that said, when you talk client experience, I define CX or client experience as the emotional reaction someone has with any interaction with your brand. So it is very much emotional. The client owns their experience. All we can do is try to shape, manage, and guide those experiences towards the positive. Uh, so you, you said two things just in that definition, emotion and interaction. So in a very, I mean, maybe not so much the architectural space, but certainly the engineering and the construction side, there's not a lot of emotion um, per se. Um, dealing with pretty low empathy industries by and large or or just it's just you're right it's not part of the natural dna possibly um how do you well this might be a, a you know sidebarring already but but just even talking about do you lose people when you talk about emotion or uh, do you think people get it today yeah even the most ardent rationalist still understands people are inherently emotional so I'm always trying to strike a balance between the head and the heart. You need to have the head stuff in line. And, and I know we'll talk about this later, but uh, uh, I'm not going to sit here and talk warm fuzzies all day. If you can't craft a compelling, measurable business case for improving your client experience, 
and bring it down to dollars and cents and profit and, and, and growth and revenue and all these other things, you're really missing out. You've got to get beyond the religion of CX and really into the business discipline of CX. And, and those are processes, there's measurement, there's metrics, there's all these repeatable pieces, but you're doing those things in order to craft an emotional reaction to your brand. And, and, and at the end of the day, when a client gets an invoice and feels disappointed that they have to pay it because they didn't get what they want versus getting the invoice and they're so glad that they get to square up with you because you created so much value for them. That emotion they feel in that moment when the number's on the page and they've got a sign, that's an emotional moment. And, and, and you want that emotion in that moment to be biased in your favor. And there's very specific strategies, techniques, and tools you can do to make sure that happens. Okay. And, and that's a great outcome to be thinking of. This is when every time they want to process your invoice, they're thinking about how they can hire you again to be exactly able to right. extend that and, and, and share you with friends. Okay. So that, that's the outcome. I mean, we, who, who is doing CX? I mean, you know, in that it, it's an emerging practice in the AEC industry. Um, but, but originally, where did it come from? Did it come from outside in, in sort of customers and, and you now it's being applied more to professional services? I mean, do, do, do you know the genesis of the whole CX movement? Uh, you know, it's uh, like anything else, you know, where did marketing come from? You know, uh, uh, it's hard to trace the roots. And, and you know, since the beginning of, of uh, a voluntary commerce, there have been people who understood that, 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 you know, inherently the way we take care of our customers or our clients leads to better outcomes. And, and, and some people elevate even further and say, you know, I'm going to focus first on my customer and their needs, and then second on the actual good or service that I provide them. Um, so so, so it, it's been going on since the dawn of commerce. Um, the formalized customer experience movement really began a couple decades ago, particularly as, as um, the internet started disrupting a lot of very traditional businesses. And, and uh, uh, all of a sudden your options were virtually unlimited for where you bought products, where you consume services. That uh, uh, intense level of disruptive competition forced people to reconcile that we need to understand the human beings that are doing business with us. So it's really been around uh, in strength for about two decades uh, outside of AEC. Uh, uh, there's good research that shows 91% of Fortune 2000 companies have a director level or above title of customer experience. The rest of the world is uh, managing their experiences. Uh, we see inside of AEC, uh, I'd say one or two percent are, are, are actually getting serious about managing the client experience. One to two percent uh, of firms, you think, over overall. Overall. There's research that came out late in 2019, uh, published by SMPS, the Society of uh, Marketers for Professional Services, that said 18 percent of firms are, are getting on the journey. Uh, and, and this is a study of 392 firm leaders, so a pretty big sample size. And uh, that same population reported that by 2022, 54% uh, believe uh, client experience management will be the number one differentiator in the marketplace. 
And three years that, ago, I felt like the lone voice in the wilderness. And, and all of a sudden, the majority opinion is this is going to be dominating our industry in a couple of years. So we're in that inflection point right now. Right. And, it, and it's not just because you're, you know, the, the marketing folks are talking to marketing folks. I mean, I, I think it is spreading well beyond that, you know, even if the percentages, you know, are a little less. I mean, I, I do see it as the, okay, we need to formalize some, some th- institutionalize some thinking and, and get the metrics. Right. Do you think, I mean, other than, you know, that example <clears throat> you shared with someone's excited to pay your invoice, are, are there any harder you know, business metrics, like the business case for CX. I mean, it makes sense. Um, it, it just, it makes sense on all levels that we should do this, but are, are there any metrics that are out there? Absolutely. And uh, I actually just uploaded a hour long uh, 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 presentation I did at the CXPS conference onto our YouTube channel that goes through this process called client lifetime value analysis. And uh, one great case study, we took uh, one firm we took uh, four years of client sentiment data. So they are gathering feedback very objectively from clients. There's numbers, there's scores. And we also, over that same four-year period, gathered the uh, revenue and profit by client. So we're able to marry those two data sources together. And we found their unhappy clients were 92% more likely to bring their spend to zero than their happy clients. And pushing a little bit further, we are able to quantify for every unhappy client you convert to a happy client generates $138,000 in future lifetime profit in net present dollars. And when the CFO of this organization looked at it, he said, your numbers are all wrong. Uh, uh, It's at least that much. You didn't factor in any of the soft value. You only looked at the hard measurable stuff. And by hard, I don't mean difficult, I mean, you know, quantitatively indisputable evidence and, you know, larger organization, but looking across their portfolio, <clears throat> we found if they could take their current group of unhappy clients and bring them to uh, top quartile performance in the industry in terms of overall a customer or client engagement, it would generate $46 million in future profits. I want to talk a little bit about the technology platform and, and, and getting objective data. I mean, how, just to start with, is there some benchmarking or, or how do we know who, um, who our clients are that might be unhappy? Yeah. Uh, if the answer to that question were universally easy, uh, I think more people would be measuring objectively. There is some really good science and there are some great ways to get good indicators of what's happening with the client. What we found is uh, second place never wins. Your clients all have options in the marketplace. And if they choose you, it's because you're a first place. And, you know, I, I, I uh, uh, think about the car you drive. Sure, there, there might be another car you'd rather have, but it costs more or the insurance or the gas mileage or whatever. And so in the grand scheme of things, in the calculus, the car you drive really is first place for you. So, so you are first place for every one of your clients. If there was a better option, it goes somewhere else. Or at least at some point you were first place. At some point you were first place, exactly. And, and what you want to do is maintain that and, and, and continually push the distance between first place and everyone else 
further and further away. Uh, Warren Buffett calls that building a moat around your brand so that you're untouchable. You know, no one's going to go compete with Snickers. They've got such a big moat around them. And a Snickers is Snickers. They're always going to be there. Um, I, 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 so, so that said, I, I think people that are asking about satisfaction are missing the mark. Your clients hired you expecting to be satisfied. Satisfaction is kind of like on time and on budget. You don't get an award for it. It's what you're supposed to do. Mm -hmm. it's, it's baseline level of performance. So instead, I encourage asking about expectations. When you ask about expectations, how well do we perform relative to expectations? Well, I expected you to perform like first place. And if you performed like first place, you met my expectations, you have more of a centered view. And therefore, when someone says, nah, you fell short of my expectations, you've got a little bit more insight into where there might be some risk in the relationship. We facilitated over 2 million uh, uh, feedback requests in the industry, and we found 24.2% of your clients are sitting on a problem right now they haven't told you about. So, and, and so that, that's the mechanism. If there's a way to survey and get the feedback and, and the bar is expectation, not did they deliver the product or service that they have in their contract. Right. It's expectations and you're actually asking the question. And so based on all those surveys, you said this, this a quarter of the, the clients are sitting on a problem that they're not sharing. Yeah, and, and there's another great metric. A lot of uh, uh, people talk about the net promoter system. I won't get into the nuances of that. Uh, it's It's, it's got value. There's some limitations, uh, but the net promoter system is a bit more focused on referability. How likely is someone to refer a colleague or peer to you? And the answer to that question, very likely versus neutral versus unlikely, is a strong predictor of future buying behavior. So when you look at the two, understanding expectations combined with referability, you end up with a really good insight into uh, the overall health and strength of a relationship. So whereas 24.2% of clients have a problem they haven't told you about, some gap of expectations, only about 7% are actively looking to take their business elsewhere. Those 7% come from the 24%. So if you leave that 24% untended, eventually they're going to trickle down and, 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 and choose to take their business somewhere else. But, you but can, that gives you a meaningful chunk of actual problems that you can solve and an ability to sort of raise the bar on expectation. I didn't even expect you were going to ask me about that and try to solve my issue. And if you do, all of a sudden the expectation might be flipped and you're, you're turning them almost faster into a, a fan. And that's a great point for every client you discover is, is, is one foot out the door based on the data we've seen in the research again, over the, these uh, 2 million surveys and these are benchmarked across over 300 AEC firms. Uh, about 22% of your clients feel like you are dramatically over-delivering compared to what they expected. And that's a huge profit opportunity from my perspective, because if your client's showing up and paying you for a Chevrolet and you keep delivering them a Cadillac, you know, no one's ever going to tell you that you're too cheap. All you ever hear is that you're too expensive. So, so there's a tremendous amount of value locked up in your over-delivery that, that you know, everyone thinks about surveys and, and finding problems. And yes, absolutely, it's critical that you do that. But that mindset also can drive fear inside some people in the organization. And there might be a very progressive leader who says, yes, of course, we need the feedback. 
And then you go and you try to do it and you get a ton of pushback because people are afraid of what are the consequences of the low scores. So I found a... Versus what you just said, the opportunity of a high score and being able to, <clears throat> to, to, to get compensated for the value that we're providing. And even if it isn't at the expense of those who told us the great value, it's the next clients that are coming down. You have a better pricing positioning, more confidence in the value you're going to deliver. So, there, 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 but I, I could see how most, a lot of people would be concerned with it. Well, if you're going to ask my clients all these questions, what are they going to say on the negative side? Not yeah. cool. How can I use this in a positive way? Yeah. I'll tell a story and I'll drop a firm name here because I have their, their permission to tell their story. It's a great firm in Iowa, Newman Munson Architects, 47 people, a very pragmatic uh, 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 firm, uh, more on the design oriented side than on the production oriented side. Uh, they do beautiful work. Um, but uh eh, you know, they're a, a, a good, you know, normal architecture firm. And, and that a few years ago, they decided to commit 100% into managing their client experience. And, and uh, uh, over that time, they've now eliminated 100% of their client problems, 100% of their clients, 100% would uh, uh, absolutely recommend them to a colleague or peer. So, they didn't stop doing feedback because there's no problems left. What they did instead is, hey, look, we have all these clients who love us. So, so uh, they trained uh, their 22 seller doers, because they're seller doers just like uh, all of us are, how to take a happy client. And in that moment, they say, you guys are the best. Convert that into an actual introduction to new work. 90 days of operating that process they got 17 net new clients worth over $2 million in backlog. You know, they're not going out and fixing problems. They're capitalizing on opportunities that delivering great experiences have generated. So, so I love operating on the positive. You got to deal with the negative stuff. It's there, address it. But, but you get a lot more buy-in from your followers inside your firm if you're looking at this from the optimistic side. Well, I find that clients, even if there is an issue, I mean, no one's expecting that there won't be issues. Uh, but I, when somebody asks about them and follows up and wants to resolve them, there's actually as much or more credibility in that. It's not when problems will occur. It's, it, it's not if they will, it's when, and then how are you going to respond? And so by asking about them, I think there's just a lot of credibility just built yeah, into that asking system. And two reactions to that. Uh, one uh, there was some research done by the Harvard Business Review a few years ago that found customers who went through a problem with the service provider where the service provider satisfied the customer in recovery were 400% more loyal than customers who never had a problem. I am not advocating to go introduce problems with your clients just to uh, uh, create that, but the character of a company in crisis is in question until the client has had the opportunity to go through a crisis with you. And the character you demonstrate in crisis really is, if it's above reproach, you got a client for life. The other point of that I would make though is if you sit down a hundred firm leaders and you pull the audience and say, what are the top 10 problems that clients face when interacting with your firm? That group of a hundred people, there's probably going to be five that show up on everybody's top 10 list. 
So if those are predictable, if we know those things happen and we all just shrug and say, well, I guess that's the way it is, eventually there's going to be a firm who says, why? Why do we have to live with that? Why do we have to let 7% of our clients stub their toe, you know, because we're just not anticipating that? It is predictable. We know it can happen. And firms that design, you you guys are designers, you're engineers, whatever language you want to use, you're builders, build a better process. Anticipate. How can we see this earlier? How do we design around it and and prevent that friction from ever happening? Boy, those firms are in the rarefied air and the firms that do that are really being very successful. I want to, I, I want to get tactical and, and, and think about, you know, how to get things going with a certain size firm, but what you had just said, I mean, and then it gets into the every interaction piece. I mean, are there, you know, if there's a journey mapping, like what are all of our touch points with our clients? Are there sort of common, like these are the top two or three or, or here are some that are just their common touch points that are just so overlooked, but valuable um, that, that a lot of professional service providers just miss. Yeah, I, I, I was working with, with a, a, a really smart client of mine just last week, and, and uh, one of them said something that, that, that just stuck. Uh, uh, and, and I like it because it's a good generalization of the question you asked. Uh, uh, bad news is not like fine wine. It never gets better with age. So whether the bad news is you discovered a site a, – situation that means now there's going to be some out of scope work with additional fee or, or, you know, a a sub consultant uh, was late on something and now there's going to be a delay. Uh, We all hate giving bad news or what seems like bad news. And, and, and so we tend to avoid it and, and it just gets harder. It just gets worse all the time. So, you know, what does every firm deal with? Every firm deals with change unexpected, unforeseen circumstances because we're dealing with very complex projects with very complex clients. And some percentage of the time, there's gonna be externalities beyond our control that impact scope, cost, quality, budget, schedule, um, and how we interact with that uh, uh, um, matters. And how we do that corporately. You probably have some great people on the team who, who handle it masterfully. And you probably have a larger number who don't handle it well. And as a buyer, I never know what I'm going to get. I can go to a Starbucks anywhere. And whether you like Starbucks or not, you can go to a Starbucks anywhere, any country. And you know what kind of experience you're going to have? The exact same experience down to them spelling your name wrong because they're doing it on purpose because it's one of their things, right? So, so in so, that case, so, you, you could standardize the, the protocol and the procedure for <laughs> basically sharing out of scope items and, and practice that and talk about it and say, these are the steps who's involved. And, and so you can systematize that if that happens to be one of the, 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 the tripping points that you get that's, through the surveys. Yes. Yes. And that's one of the things that, that fascinates me about our industry because we are delivering very high value solutions and the people doing so are very intelligent, highly educated, highly compensated professionals. And we can't get our stuff together. Meanwhile, Anyone listening to this podcast could go get $50,000 and open up a franchise of a Chick-fil-A or a McDonald's, and they're going to give you an operating manual that tells you exactly how to train minimum wage, high school dropouts, how to deliver on their brand standards with consistency every time. And, and, and you know, 
boy, if they can do it, and yeah, I know flipping burgers isn't necessarily as complicated as what we do, but I mean, have you ever seen a Chick-fil-A close? No, but it gets into, you know, there's there's two different parts. There's the playbook. There's the, here are the series of steps that we do to be able to produce this product, to share this bad news. And then it probably flies into the, you know, the empathy piece. This is how we, this is how we actually deliver it. This is how we understand the values and the needs and and think about how we deliver. I mean, we we have a playbook to figure out what we need to deliver when, but then how we do it, that get, that's probably what brings in the empathy piece, you know, how we actually do it, it. It's, it, it's different than the playbook. It's how we're calling the plays. Yeah. And, and it's creating a culture. It's, it's creating standardization, training, onboarding, how you hire, their, uh, 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 CX management is really integrated in every aspect of your business. And uh, uh, firms that want to manage their sticks, every firm is delivering client experience very few firms are managing the delivery of that experience. We're all creating experiences. Some of us are intentionally managing the experiences that we deliver and that we create. So firms that want to move in that direction of managing experiences are, are going to be the same kind of firms that, you know, do you manage your finances or do you just like log in once a week and see how much money is in the bank and hope you're doing okay? You know, firms have had to stand up robust enterprise resource management and building practices and time management and all these things in order to run their their businesses at a profit. Um, so if I if I'm a, if I'm a principal in a firm, say it's a hundred to two hundred people, and and I've bought in, I I want we want a better strategy around our client experience. We want to be able to sort of replicate, understand and replicate some things. What might be some of our first steps? We we. we this is important. We, we want to understand this. We want to set the strategy. What, how do they start? You know, uh, uh, that, that is a question we talk about here on an almost daily basis because it's uh, uh, because professional services firms are all so unique and, and uh, the situations are different. I kind of feel like it's usually a one size fits one approach. Uh, uh, my recommendation is nobody needs something new to do. We're all busy. No one needs something else to do just because, you know, some executive heard a podcast. Yeah, CX, I'm going to go do, do, do CX. You're all trying to do something right now. You're fighting a talent war. You're trying to enter a market. You're working on a leadership transition. Uh, uh, you've got a growth initiative. So, so whatever is on your strategic plan, I, my recommendation is start there. Look at your strategic plan and figure out what are one of the top, you know, one, two, three most important things for us. And then how do we use experience management to accelerate that aspect of our business? Because now there's a reason why. And you look at CX as a tool or as an enabler for business outcomes. And, and it's a lot easier to get buy-in because, you know, you gave some poor principal this task to go do the strategic thing. And, you know, how am I going to do that? Oh, well, here's some tools. Here's some support. Here's a approach to accelerate your success at that. It's usually received with a bit more open arm. Can you, ex- um, can you, can you play that out a little bit? Like <clears throat> say that, okay, I'm in charge of developing, you know, a, a, a new line in this new office. 
um, or, or, or we, it was a merger and acquisition, and I have now inherited this office, and I'm trying to bring the, the culture and you know bring some of the, the the support that we promised into that office to make it flourish and, and connect them to the the new firm, even though they used to hire the old firm. Yeah. Is there a way just you know to go through what that scenario might look like? <laughs> we could do a five part podcast on handling right. CX through a merger and acquisition. That's a uh, that's a big question there, Pete. Uh, uh, that said, um, uh, yes, there are predictable emotional things that are going to happen to the acquired clients and the acquired employees. And, and if you look at this, you know, CX is all about putting yourself in someone else's shoes and looking at the world from their perspective. So you that's just the empathy piece. That's just the definition of empathy. Yeah. And, 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 you know what? On the Clifton Strengths Finders, there's 34 strengths. Number 33 on my list is empathy. So who am I to talk about empathy? I wasn't born with it, but I recognized it was a skill that was really valuable. So I've developed processes, tools, and approaches that 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 help you do this. And and uh, you know, uh, any of your listeners who want a a a primer on creating an empathy map, uh, by all means, reach out. I'm happy to send you a primer on creating an empathy map. The process with post-it notes and a little bit of wall space. You can take a group of the most rationalist engineers and a couple hours later, they are thinking like their client. So, so, so let's look at an acquired client from their perspective. And, and uh, you know, where are you in the journey? Maybe the news has already been announced, so you kind of missed that emotional moment. But uh, you know, it's day one of go live. What questions do they have? I don't know what questions do they have we can brainstorm what questions do they have how do we answer those questions well we need to do some communications anyway there's probably some poor marketing coordinator trying to come up with content to to send out but why don't we do the five questions you're probably going to have you know uh do i still pay my outstanding invoices or am i going to get a new invoice uh do i still call the same person i've always called or is there somebody new i have to call you know you can anticipate these questions. Well, if you anticipate the questions, then now you got your content. And, and here's the five questions you may have. Here's the answers. And, and they read, I'm like, oh, okay. So really not much is going to change. I got it. Um, and, 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 you know, that's a good CX tool just to think about someone, a client, for example, in a critical moment of truth. That's where the world is changing. And, and you know, what questions do they have? What needs do they have? What are they feeling? What do you want them to feel after the interaction? What are they thinking? What do you want them to think after the interaction? You know, it's, 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 you don't need software for that. Just, just take a few minutes with the team and brainstorm. I mean, what it just, it just, you know, it's so simple, but so profound. <laughs> I have the, I mean, cause it's like, I said that question. I'm like, oh my goodness, that's a lot. That's a complicated question. And, and you just turned it around to, I don't know, what does the client feel? What, and so it really simplifies what we need to do from that perspective. And then you could just extend it to the staff, the staff that's in the office. What are they worried about? What are they thinking yeah. about? So yeah. you can do your client retention and your, um, and, and your employee retention with the same thought process, thinking about it from their shoes and actually acting. So yeah. I think that's really neat. And that's a mindset shift. So do you feel as though it is this CX thought process? Does it change if I have a 50 person firm or a 200 or a 500 person firm, or is it really just a mindset? Yeah. Uh, again, I'm going to take the easy way out here and answer from the client's perspective. Uh, uh, your biggest competitor from a CX perspective 
isn't the engineering firm across the street. Your biggest competitor is, you know, I, I, uh, I ran out of toothpaste the other day. Well, I could have walked over to the kitchen and written on the grocery list, you know, toothpaste and tried to like write down the brand that I like because my wife doesn't always remember all of my preferences. Or while I'm brushing my teeth with one hand, I pull up my phone, open up Amazon, take a picture of the toothpaste, one tap buy now and it's there tomorrow. And, and I can do that for a $4 thing of toothpaste, but a $400,000 construction project, I can't even get an update on where the status of the project is. I, 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 um, so does it matter if you're 50 people or 500 or 5,000 people? No, because your client's not really benchmarking you always against a 50 person or a 500 person firm. They're benchmarking you against just, we're all consumers. We all have buyer experiences in a variety of different ways. And, and my goodness, I'm paying you a thousand times more than I am Amazon. And why can't you just get me? Why can't you be easy like Amazon? So that said, there certainly are complexities. You got a small firm, an under 50 person firm. You tend to have a lot of founder led businesses. You have a, a, a single shareholders or a small collective of shareholders. It's a lot easier to have that person, that leader, catch the fever and, and evangelize hard for this because they're closer to it. Um, but a lot of those small firms struggle because they don't have systems and processes in place. They tend to be entrepreneurial. I'm using air quotes here, which is, I think is often code word for everyone just does it their own way. Yeah, I'm working with the 5,000 person uh, global engineering outfit right now. And how do you standardize CX when you got 5,000 people sitting in, in, in four continents? That's, that's, that's a you know, very different. So yes, you've got to have executive buy-in, but there's systems, there's processes, there's integrations, there's data. There's just a lot of other things that happen there. So, uh, you know, from my perspective, the leading CX practitioner in AEC is 47 person architecture firm in Iowa. Um, uh, I have yet to see someone do it better. Um, uh, uh, and I say that not just cause I like them. I've got the stats to prove it. Their clients agree. So, uh, uh anybody can do it. Right. But, but it might have to be segmented. It might have to be segmented in a way that th there is a champion in certain and that 5,000 person firm, it can't be one person championing it. It's got to be a series of people who have, you know, 50 or hundred people under them that's championing it. And you have the right processes and systems in place. You know, any leader anywhere, whether you're a leader of a seven person team in a remote office, or you're the CEO of a top 10 global company, any leader can begin to implement CX in their sphere of influence. And if you are one of those small team leads, I encourage you because CX isn't just about putting the client in the center. It's about linking that to business outcomes. Well, if you as a leader of a seven person team in a remote office start generating above average business outcomes compared to your peers, peers people are going to start asking, hey, uh, Pete, how you doing that? You just grew 20% last year and increased your profit 30%. How'd you do that? And, 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 you know, start small, build those case studies, show that it works. Uh, and at that point um, it's scalable. It, it, it's one client at a time. So it can start with one client. It can start with one team and then it's scalable and you might need <clears throat> processes and systems in place to collect the data, but, yeah. but it's something that can start one office, one person, one client at a time, which I think 
is great. And, and there is that shift, especially in our busyness to really think about the client perspective. Th that being said, have you seen that client demands have changed much? I mean, is it still the same client? We've just got busier and less connected? Or do you think there really is, you know, client needs and demands really have changed over the last decade or two? Yeah, I, I really do think buyers and clients have changed. And that's because most of our interactions as buyers aren't with AEC firms. We're buying from Amazon and, and, you know, big box and, and all these other innovators on CX. So uh, um, is it different? Absolutely. But there has been a dramatic push by the rest of the world to remove friction, to introduce delight, to know more about me than my mother knows about me. And, and, you know, I give far fewer signals to Amazon than I do to say my managed service provider who takes care of all of our IT and technology around here. You spend thousands, of, I spend thousands of dollars every month with them. I, you know, I, I was in an hour and a half meeting with them just before this. They have so much more knowledge about me, but they don't aggregate it. They don't, you know, share it. They don't track it and, and, and really put it to work. And so, you know, if, if one person learns my preferences, but that never gets translated to everybody else, you know, uh, they've missed that opportunity. So, so uh, I think expectations are, uh, uh, are higher these days because we know that there's companies out there who can track me, can understand me, can monitor my preference, can, can, can I keep all of that in a database somewhere? Yeah. I'll tell a great story. I, uh, uh, I'm a, a, a proponent of a certain hotel brand. And every time I go stay in that hotel, they know that I want the green choice. So they don't knock on my door every day trying to disturb me. They know that I want the points at check-in rather than the free drink coupon. They know that I prefer a higher floor. They know, they know, they know. I never have to tell them every time I check in, they just take care of me. Speaking at a conference a few years ago, staying at the conference, uh, a facility that was not my chosen brand. And the first thing I do as a regular business traveler, before I even walk in my hotel room, I take the do not disturb tag and put it on the outside of the door and just leave me alone for three days. I'm a big boy. I'm not that messy. I don't need you in my room making my bed. Just leave me alone. Every day, 10 o'clock in the morning during the conference, including the one day I was speaking during my speech, they called me and said, Mr. Saddam, I see you had your do not disturb on the door. Would you like us to clean your room? No, please don't call me again. They called me again the next day. They called me again the third day. I left the hotel. Three days later, they sent me a survey. I took the survey and they said, hey, do not disturb means do not disturb. So they had the data. Well, guess what? I spoke at another conference three weeks later at the exact same hotel, like same property, same city. Guess what happened? Every day, like clockwork, they called me and disturbed me. So I gave them the information daily and through the survey, and they didn't store that information. They, they didn't act on the information. So I felt frustrated as a as a customer. And so it just, it just translating that, I mean, I can, you know, a, a principal in charge understands the client. They went through the whole, you know, um, proposal process. They signed the contract. They did that. They know what I want, but the project manager shows up and hasn't been informed. 
you know, or the, you know, the client finally trains the project manager and then the lead project engineer covers a meeting and wasn't informed and now I have to train them. Or we get, you know, we do some cross selling and another project manager comes in selling this other, you know, or working on this other type of project and now I have to retrain them. I, I, just that sole scenario of a client saying, how many of you do I need to train? Don't you understand? And I see there the, the value of a system. Right. Whereas and if we want to do more work together, you just need to understand me. And you're onto something there because uh, you talk about cross-selling. That is one of the, the top five things we hear a clients and potential clients of ours talk about as a challenge in their business. So one, buyers aren't buying additional services from you because they know that you're not capturing their preferences and sharing them around. So, you know, from your perspective, it looks like a one-stop shop from their perspective. It's no different than buying from five different companies because if I'm buying five services from you, I'm getting five completely different experiences. I don't really get the benefit of one-stop shop. Right. Two, oh, that's it. That's, that's it. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, two, internally, if I'm the director of, of one service line and I've got this great relationship with a great client and I know this about my own organization, I am almost disincentivized to introduce my client to another discipline because if they don't take care of my client the way I do, they could burn me. And if, if they burn me by burning my client, not only do we not cross sell, but now that client takes her business elsewhere and I'm disadvantaged. So there's this weird internal sense of, of protectionism and fear that gets in the way of cross selling. So, so, so failures to, to know your client, use that information and manage their experience prevents the buyers from buying more from you and it prevents your own staff from cross-selling, which right. these are two things we all want our clients to do in spades. Right. And that example, we both know that is not hypothetical. <laughs> so so that, that really happens. So, all right. So say a, 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 a firm steps into this. They start moving forward um, and they start an initiative. And it, it, uh, what are some of the stumbling blocks to maintaining it? Or, or, or is it just you get such a return on that investment, it just sort of picks up on itself? Or, or are there sort of stumbling blocks along the way where, they were, it was a great idea, it worked for a year, but it wasn't able to, to sustain itself? Yeah, I think uh, 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 wanton, reckless optimism is, is certainly one because we were in such an early adoption phase in the industry. Uh, 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 jumping in thinking CX is going to do more than it's going to do without putting the appropriate inputs into it is, is, uh, uh, you know, one of the last things you want to do when standing up a CX is overpromise and underdeliver. So you can spend a great design session figuring out all the problems a client has or might have with your business. But if you don't have the governance structure in place and the processes and systems in place to actually affect change, you just learned a bunch of stuff, but you haven't acted on a bunch of stuff and you haven't acted sustainably on a bunch of stuff. Okay. So we've got the feedback from a client. We know where there's gaps, either little G gaps or big G gaps. And, you know, now we have the opportunity to respond, but if our incentive systems or our time management or our priorities are such that we're not responding, we might've done more harm than good. Yeah. I, I did an analysis with the firm and found out the root cause of the majority of their client experience gaps was they had uh, uh, separated the sales and, and delivery functions and their salespeople were incentivized on revenue and the delivery people were incentivized on profit. So what do the salespeople do? 
They just try to bring in as much revenue as possible. What do the delivery people do? They try to deliver as little as possible to get the numbers up. And, and the fundamental problem in the organization was a compensation strategy. And until the compensation strategy was addressed in order to align it with business outcomes for the firm and uh, ideal outcomes for the client, the problem was never going to go away. So, so when you start down the CX path, you're going to find some, some difficult stuff. And, and most people don't think that, that, that compensation strategies are a part of CX, but they can be if your compensation, compensation strategies are out of alignment with value co-creation for your clients. Oh, well, it's behavior driven. So, but, but and we're going to, what we incentivize is what we get. So if we're not incentivizing that client outcome in, in the right way, financially, or however the, the, the case is, we're going to get what we incentivize. And maybe it's even just a strategy of thinking about what are we actually incentivizing and does that align with what we want to do? Because if, if we need to get on the highway north, but we keep incentivizing, get on the highway south, we're not going to get there. And, and usually it's not that bad north and south. It's, I want to go north, but, but people are going east and west. Um, but you raise up another good point there. Uh, uh, a, a good rationalist might listen to your argument and say, great, so, so we need to tie compensation to client outcomes. So we're going to do client feedback and bonuses will be based on the scores of the client feedback. Well, then guess what happens? Now you end up with the model that the uh, a car dealers have where they chase you off the lot. If you don't give me five out of five stars and I don't get my commission and my kids won't have Christmas and, and, and they, they start manipulating the score rather than managing the service experience. So these are complex mm -hmm. issues and, and, and I don't want to say they can't be solved. They absolutely can, but you, it, it, starting CX without thinking a few steps down the road you can actually lead to some surprisingly negative false starts. And, and, and anyone who, who tells you CX is easy isn't conversant on what CX really is. Um, also, anyone who starts a CX effort without a clear business case, that is just destined for failure. You're gonna become the flavor of the quarter executive uh, play toy and, 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 and it's not going to be sustainable. So, so good firms starting good CX are, are starting with the end in mind. They're linking this to positive outcomes for clients. They're linking it to positive business outcomes for the firm. They are measurable, they're accountable, and they're biased towards a sustainable action and change. And, and and, and do you think that the, the, the time to get, is it during strategic planning when we're thinking about the important things or is this sometimes we do strategic planning for the firm and one of the outcomes is we really need to dive into CX. I mean, do you see like, is there a certain process or, or season where you're going to be able to get the right discussions in place to be able to, to move forward with a CX program? And is that traditionally strategic planning or is it just sort of something that can happen on its own? Certainly the, those typical management interventions are great places to talk about CX because you've got all the right minds in the room. But, you know, if you do your strategic planning in December, and we're sitting here at, you know, March 3rd, uh, boy, nine months is a long time to wait to be smart in your business. Right. So, so my recommendation is find someone who's got a problem in the business. You know, who's got the biggest pain and, 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 you know, 
that doesn't always work with, with some people. So who sees the biggest opportunity and there's a boulder in the way between today and, and, and achieving that opportunity? Uh, um, then let's use that and explore how can CX help alleviate the problem or remove the boulder? Because you've got a built-in business case there. And if there's someone who's dealing with the pain, they're going to be, be motivated to get that pain out of the way. So, so if you've got a struggling business unit, you know, they're underperforming, that business unit leader might be, you know, really grateful that you're offering to let them pilot a CX initiative as a tool to help turn them around. Uh, um, I, you know, uh, it never hurts to, to just start talking about CX uh, uh, it is new. It's not like, you know, time management. We've all talked about time management. Everybody knows about project management. Some are better than others for sure, but we all fundamentally understand project management. That baseline understanding about CX doesn't exist. So that, that's a great place for any firm to start. Just start talking about it. You know, uh, Amazon famously leaves an empty chair in every one of their meetings. So when they make decisions, they look at the empty chair and say, hey, customer, what do you think about this? And it's just a visual reminder that we need to be empathetic so that, so that our decisions are benefiting the customer. Right. And you, uh, and you, you shared an example of, um, you know, in an extreme, <clears throat> if, we, if we incentivize on the client, we're going to end up, you know, really chasing the client down for great reviews, which is not the, the ideal outcome. And, and you mentioned Amazon a couple of times. And I, you know, from knowing people who have worked there and knowing people in the area, I mean, Amazon is everything you just said on my phone, they aggregate data. They know me from a client experience perspective, phenomenal setting the bar from an employee experience perspective. You know, it's a, from the accounts I've heard, it's a pretty toxic environment and, you know, but they have thousands of people who want to work there for all kinds of reasons. Right. How do you, in practice, how do we manage extreme client service with the needs of employees. Is that a balance? Is that part of the strategy when we're thinking about that? No, you know, not getting to the point where we want our client service to sort of cut, in from the, cut into the employee experience. Can you share a little bit about that dynamic and, and what that looks like? That's a great and compound question. So I wanna respond in, in, in two parts. And, and one, you talk about extreme client experience. Uh, uh, you know, I would describe extreme customer experience as like the Ritz Carlton, but not everyone wants to stay at the Ritz Carlton. You can have a tremendous positive customer experience in a very low touch, low friction commodity environment. So, so, so don't misunderstand what I'm talking about delivering a, a great CX. I'm not saying you have to go up market, upscale. There's some really, really clever ways to do CX by being uh, faster, easier and cheaper than all of your competitors. The Waltons and, and, and Jeff Bezos made build, uh, billions of dollars by doing just that. So, so, so it doesn't mean you have to go upscale or demand more from your employees than they're capable of. Uh, what it does mean is engaging your employees and supporting your employees in a shared vision. Uh, you could, as a leader, tell all of your employees, hey guys, we're gonna deliver the best, uh, best client experience we possibly can. We're going to be better than anybody else. But you got a hundred employees, you got a hundred different understandings of what better client experience means. So engage your employees in conversations. What does that mean? What does it look like? Call out the positive behaviors from your staff when you see it. 
and, and turn your employees into heroes when they're exhibiting the behaviors that you want them to exhibit. Uh, even if the outcome wasn't exactly what you wanted, look at the behaviors, recognize the behaviors. Uh, um, I just did a, a, a town hall meeting with another client where I facilitated five of their employees were panelists and the rock star of the panel got absolutely the most devastatingly critical feedback that the company had gotten in eight years. And she was the rock star because she used it. And a client who said, I'll never do business with you again, six weeks later, signed a $150,000 contract for new services. You know, uh, uh, the outcome, the initial outcome wasn't the desired outcome, but she had leadership support. They engaged her, collaborated with her, created an outcome and, and, and elevated her into a position of hero. So uh, um, uh, the two certainly go hand in hand there. I will say it's very difficult in a high touch uh, client service model, which Amazon does not have. You can burn Correct. people out right. a little bit more in Amazon. As long as the systems are working, you can burn your people out. Uh, I don't recommend it, but you can get away with it. You can't burn your people out in professional services because those burned out people are talking to your clients when you're not in the room. And, and their attitude, their tone, their tenor absolutely impact the experience. Um, so, so uh, managing your client, managing your employee experience is a critical part of managing your client experience. It's a chicken and egg. I've seen firms start with one, start with the other. Uh, there's no right way. It just depends what your focus is. And, 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 and you know, good place to start is, is a do an assessment. Assess where are your employees? Where are your clients? That'll tell you where the biggest problems are and where to start focusing. But also, a uh, better client experience leads to a better employee experience. No one likes showing up to work every day and putting out fires. No one likes showing up and dealing with frustrated clients. It's taxing. I'd rather spend my day working with clients and supporting clients who rave about me. Right. So, and it's the other way too. I mean, you know, yeah. if, if you, you can deal with the, with the client issues <clears throat> that come up if you're in a good spot as an employee. And so, I mean, it does get into that fundamental relationship that we need to build everything around and it's our clients and our talent because without clients, we don't have a business without talent serving those clients. We don't have a business and both of them, we need some pretty heavy investment in because they are, they are both going to rise and fall with each other. Yep. Anything you can do, and Pete, I know you do a lot of this work, anything you can do to help people become better people, people, there's a lot of people's there. Anything you can do to invest in, in uh, soft skills, empathy, listening, uh, a leadership development, those are all going to directly and indirectly influence your client experience positively. Right. Well, and th this has been fabulous. And, and, you know, but before we close, I mean, is there anything else that you would like to share or add to uh, what we've been discussing today or anything else that we haven't been able to touch on as it relates to, um, to CX? Yeah. And, and uh, Pete, you had given me a little bit of permission to, to uh, promote just a couple of resources for your audience here. And one, uh, there is a two and a half day conference, a client experience and professional services. And don't let the name fool you. It also covers employee experience and buyer and brand experience. So if you're in this experience mindset, we get about 200 people from across uh, multiple industries, predominantly AEC, who uh, spend time together sharing case studies and, and, and thought leadership on, 
on this kind of stuff. So if, if for whatever reason you just can't get enough of this and, and, and uh, you want two and a half days of it, there's a great community, a clientexperience.org. It gives you all the information. And uh, uh, for your audience, uh, Pete 200 will knock $200 off the uh, registration price for that. Um, uh, if anyone wants to reach out, answers at clientsavvy.com. We have a, a great little toolkit called the Client Experience Deck or CX Deck. There's 52 cards in a deck, 52 weeks in a year. Play one card a week in a staff meeting, and it gives you a two to five minute uh, uh, prompt for a short CX exercise. So if this is on your radar, but you're not ready to commit, hey, it's free, it's easy, and it helps start spreading the word. We'll send a, one of those to any of you who reach out and ask for that. And we do have just a great collection of white papers on deeper CX topics. So if there's a specific CX challenge or question you have, reach out to answers at clientsavvy.com. We probably have something that can help you on the way. You know, uh, uh, we're a big fan of sharing our information openly and, and uh, 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 we won't hold back. Yeah, and I will say I, I was at, I had the, the, the privilege of speaking and sharing at the, the CXPS conference last year, and it was one of my favorite conferences. It is very well done. There's tremendous people who are, attend and share, and I, I, I'm a big fan of the conference. So well, as a I, bunch I of experienced designers, we try to design some pretty good experiences for those who choose to spend their time with us. So we have some great surprises and, and fun things planned this year. It's, it's, it's going to be a good time. All right. And then how can folks get in touch with you to learn more about what you're doing, Client Savvy and CXPS? I mean, you shared the websites. Is there any, are there any other ways to get in touch with you that we can include in the show notes? Uh, you know, I, I, I'm pretty open. Uh, my cell phone number is uh, 919-271-7680. Uh, call me anytime. I've got a morning commute from uh, 730 to 8 o'clock on weekday mornings, Eastern time. Great time to catch my ear if you want to uh, just ask a really hard question. Um, a clientsavvy.com for our business, a clientexperience.org for the conference, uh, answers at clientsavvy.com. That goes to me as well as the rest of my team. So uh, uh, we're not too hard to get a hold of. All right. Well, um, thank you. Uh, thank you for being a guest and sharing all of your knowledge and, and insights as it relates to client experience. Well, Pete, I appreciate you having me on. You asked some uh, great questions, and uh, I do hope that this helped add some value to your audience. Excellent. Well, thank you again, and take care. All right. Well, that's a wrap. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe to and rate this podcast on iTunes or whatever platform you listen to the show from. There are links on my website and in the show notes to do so, and please share this podcast with your friends and colleagues. It really helps to get us established, and I truly appreciate that. It also helps get the word out so that together we can collectively grow and positively impact the lives of others, both inside and beyond our organizations. So thank you. Thanks for joining us on today's episode of AEC Leadership Today. If you want to stay relevant and effective and take your growth and prosperity to new levels, it's time to take action. To learn more about how Pete can help take you and your firm to the next level, visit www.actionsprove.com. That's www.actionsprove.com. See you next time on the AEC Leadership Today podcast.